0: China has more than 200 confirmed cases of coronavirus, it's called, which produces pneumonia-like symptoms. Three people have already died from this illness, which has spread to at least three other Asian countries. We weren't sure what it was at first. I know that sounds crazy now, but truly, we thought it was pneumonia, maybe some type of the flu. Some even said it might be the Black Death. All we knew was that something, some sickness, was making its way out of Wuhan, China, and around the world. We also knew that it killed people. A Washington state resident fell ill after returning from Wuhan, China, where the outbreak began. Officials now say more than 400 people have been sickened and nine people have died. The first case in America was reported in early January 2020, but some say it was here even sooner than that. By March, the case count in the United States had exploded It was 200 cases at first, then 2,000, then 20,000, and then, well, you know the rest.
1: Breaking news tonight, President Trump declaring the coronavirus a national emergency as America contracts to slow the rapidly spreading pandemic. The number of cases in the U.S. rising over 2,000, at least 49 deaths.
0: It feels weird recounting all this to you. You lived through it. We all lived through it. We're still living through it. We watched as a virus entered our country, and we watched our country respond.
1: My fellow Americans, tonight I want to speak with you about our nation's unprecedented response to the coronavirus outbreak that started in China and is now spreading throughout the world. Today, the World Health Organization officially announced that this is a global pandemic. We have been in frequent contact with our allies, and we are marshalling the full power of the federal government and the private sector to protect the American people.
0: It's been more than a year since COVID-19 was first declared a global pandemic by the World Health Organization. More than a year since the stay-at-home orders, since the N95 masks, since we all told each other, flatten the curve. Two weeks to slow the spread. Remember that? A lot has changed since then. We've reached slightly more hopeful times, but we've had to go through some really incredibly dark times too. We've lost people that we love, people we took into 2020 or 2021 who we weren't able to bring out as we endured first, second, and third waves of the virus. And sometimes, despite the year we've all had living with this pandemic, it can still feel, at least to me, Like we're sailing through uncharted waters. Or more like we're adrift at sea. So I turned to history to try and prove myself wrong. To prove that we've been in tough times like these before. To prove that we can get ourselves out of them. I never thought history would make me feel better, per se. History is a terrible place to go if you're looking for soft, cushy comfort. But I did think it might help me feel more grounded, as I watched my country go through several crises at once, with the pandemic being the worst and most pressing of them. But actually, we've seen pandemics in America before. (music) Welcome to press Times, the podcast about America's past, America's present, and how it all seems to be repeating itself. I'm Dylan Mims. In our first ever episode, we're talking pandemics, specifically the 1918 Spanish influenza. So let me take you back to where it all began, Kansas. You weren't expecting me to say that the Spanish flu got its start in Kansas, were you? I'm guessing you thought I'd say Spain? Well, just like March of 2020, there's no international travel happening here, at least not yet. Influenza, or just the flu, wasn't a novelty around the world or in America, and by 1918, it wasn't considered particularly deadly either. But something was different about whatever was afflicting the patients of Dr. Loring Minor. Minor lived in Haskell County, Kansas, southwest, almost exactly opposite of Topeka, the state's capital. It's rural, like a lot of Kansas, and in the black and white photos you can find from the 20th century, it looks like the perfect backdrop for the wild, wild west. You have expect a cowboy to ride in on a black stallion, trailed by a dust storm and a caravan of tumbleweeds. But Dr. Minor rode in a horse and buggy. He had patients all over the county. All over the state, in fact. But there was one patient in late January who he was particularly concerned about. It seemed, at first, like they might have just had the common cold, but this would turn out to be anything but common. The patient was experiencing achiness, fevers, and a severe cough, Minor eventually diagnosed the ailment as influenza. grippe is what they used to call it, but not any kind of influenza they'd seen before. That first patient wasn't the only patient, at least not for long. One patient after another after another came down with a strange new disease in Haskell County. The Santa Fe Monitor, a local paper, reported on its inner pages that Miss Eva von Alstein is sick with pneumonia. Homer Moody has reported quite sick, Mrs. J.S. Cox is some better, but is very weak yet. Ralph McConnell has been quite sick. Minor started studying the disease obsessively, pouring over his notes and medical texts, conducting extensive experiments, all while trying to help and heal his patients that fell ill so quickly. This was clearly no normal case of grippe. Whatever this influenza was, it was new, and it was dangerous. Minor reached out to the U.S. Public Health Service for help, but heard nothing back. Nothing useful, at least. And then, six months into 1918, just when the disease seemed unstoppable, it stopped. It just sort of went away. This confused Miner even more, but even though the virus had finished wreaking havoc in Haskell County, the doctor knew he still needed to sound the alarm. He wrote an article in a journal, the Public Health Report. He warned of, quote, influenza of a severe type. It was the first warning of its kind coming from the first doctor to face the influenza head-on. But influenza was so common and mild most of the time that nobody in America was really tracking its presence across the country. And because the virus had seemed to die right there in rural and remote Haskell County, maybe nobody would ever have to. There was just one problem. A young soldier from Haskell County, Dean Nelson, was headed back to his service as a soldier in World War I. He felt fine when he packed up and left for Camp Funston in Northeast Kansas, but it wasn't long before he started feeling the same symptoms as other young people in his hometown. Camp Funson was known for being cold, so troops often huddled close together in tents. You've been through a pandemic before, so you already know where this story is headed. Before long, 200 men had reported sick, and almost 40 of them had already died. The military doctors were at a loss, the same way Minor was. Meanwhile, writes John Barry in his book The Great Influenza, Camp Funston fed a constant stream of men to other American bases and to Europe, men whose business was killing. They would be more proficient at it than they could imagine. The United States had been fighting in World War I for about a year when the outbreak started, since April, 1917, despite efforts to stay out of it. Woodrow Wilson, who'd been president for four years by that time, had resisted pressure to join the war back in 1914. Wilson was an intellectual, the former president of Princeton University, and a progressive. He had been governor of New Jersey before running for president, and entered the White House on the promise of new freedom, freedom that looked a lot like economic reform. Now, he hadn't actually won the popular vote in that first election, and he largely won the presidency because the Republican vote was split between two best friends turned enemies, Teddy Roosevelt and William Howard Taft. Wilson won with 435 electoral votes, but just 42% of the popular vote. In that first term, Wilson championed a policy of neutrality, turning the other cheek to the violence breaking out in Germany and across Europe. He even ignored when Germany broke naval rules and sunk an American passenger ship called the Lusitania. Well, no, he didn't ignore the attack, but after more than a 1000 passengers died in the wreckage. All Wilson did was wave a finger at Germany and get them to curb their submarine warfare. Wilson really, really did not want to enter this war. He even ran on the campaign slogan, He kept us out of the war, for his 1916 re-election. Wilson went to bed that second election night thinking he'd lost, but by the morning, it turns out he'd won. 277 electoral votes to 252. He also won the popular vote this time around. He'd kept America out of the war, and that's what people wanted. But not even half a year after his reelection, President Wilson faced a dilemma he could no longer ignore. In the early months of 1917, the British, who were fighting against Germany, intercepted a telegram, the Zimmermann Telegram. It was a secret communication between German officials and Mexico about an alliance, in case the United States entered the war against Germany. Germany proposed an invasion of America that would seize Texas, New Mexico, and Arizona and returned them to Mexico. This was finally too much for Wilson and most of the federal government. On April 2nd, the President delivered his official war address. He told Congress that they must wage war on Germany and that quote, the world must be safe for democracy. Now even though Wilson had never wanted to enter the war, he didn't do things halfway. Once he was in, he was all in. He sent troops to American allies all across the world to help in the effort against Germany but we could expect powerful influence from the United States abroad. In my opinion, what's more interesting is Wilson's power at home. At the very start of the war, the president had said, it isn't an army we must shape and train for war, it is a nation. And he was right. Entering the war before the Zimmerman telegram had been massively unpopular among the American public, and even afterwards, Wilson knew he'd have a lot of work to do in the PR department to gain the approval of the American people, he became obsessed with uplifting national morale and silencing anything he thought might tear it down. He passed two laws, the Espionage Act and the Sedition Act, which basically made it illegal to criticize the US government or its actions. Wilson clearly wasn't in the mood for dissent, but the changes didn't stop there. The war effort seeped into every part of American culture. Schools stopped teaching German, fashion styles changed so that more materials could be used for uniforms and an army of four minute men gave persuasive speeches in restaurants and movie theaters across the country. It really did feel like the whole country was going to war. Now what does all this have to do with the growing outbreak of influenza? Well, beyond infected troops being shipped all over the country and all over the world, Wilson's espionage act barred most publications from printing anything negative happening in the country, including the growing threat of a mysterious virus. So even as influenza spread across the United States, nobody sounded the alarm. What's worse, there was practically no federal or public health services to be had, so infected communities were left out on their own, without the help of the federal government. In his attempt to boost morale and beat Germany, Wilson had suppressed and downplayed the threat of the virus. He was leading the country forward, into war. But another, even deadlier war, was creeping up behind him. Influenza spread quickly between military camps in the United States. In three weeks, Funston, that original camp that I mentioned, had more than 1,100 troops in the hospital. Two more camps came down with the virus soon after, and by the end of spring, more than two dozen camps had an outbreak of influenza, and so did 30 of the largest cities in the country. It wasn't easy to track the spread of pandemics in those days, but most scientists have concluded that before Haskell County and Funston, there had been no serious influenza activity. But now, influenza was everywhere, including the rest of the world. As the United States moved its soldiers from domestic camps to foreign ones, both our allies and our enemies came down with the disease. French troops contracted the virus shortly after Americans arrived there from Funston in April, and the Germans had an outbreak a few weeks later. By May, British medical centers were overrun with more than 36,000 patients. Now here's what's interesting. Spain remained neutral in World War I, and had barely any cases throughout the spring of 1918, at least at first. And it's not hard to see why this was. A virus spreading through active military camps during wartime wouldn't affect a country that wasn't at war. And because Spain wasn't at war, Spanish newspapers weren't under the same sort of censorship laws that existed among the allied and central powers. Spanish newspapers were free to write about the virus as much as they wanted. And they did. Spain published more reports about the spreading disease than any other country, and so the virus was nicknamed the Spanish Flu. After all the research I've done for this podcast, and all the cool facts you'll hear in these episodes, I think that this is my all-time favorite. It's just so ironic to me that the virus got its name not after where it came from, but who was sounding the alarm. And even more ironic how few people knew about it. I didn't know about it, at least. But what had been spreading across Europe and the United States was only the first wave of influenza. Overall, its symptoms didn't seem too dangerous, with most patients being hospitalized, but only a handful actually dying. Some of the British soldiers even called it the three-day fever. Rates of the virus had even slowed down during the summer months, and it seemed for a moment like the serious danger that was seen in Haskell County had been avoided on a global scale. But unfortunately, as we all know by now, Pandemics don't just strike once and leave. They come in waves. Multiple waves. Somewhere in Europe, likely Britain, a new strand of influenza began to populate. The Spanish influenza was an avian or bird flu originally. And here's the thing about bird flus, or really all viruses, they can only survive if they have a suitable host. And a virus made for birds doesn't do all that much to humans. Remember, three day fever. So to survive, The virus will mutate, changing itself to be more effective within its host body. It spreads easier and kills much faster. The second wave of the Spanish flu arrived in August of 1918. It came by boat from England, carrying infected British soldiers. Ships docked everywhere, from Brest in France to Boston in the United States, and the virus came with them. And it was even worse than anyone might have feared. At Camp Devens, less than 40 miles from Boston, more than 1,500 soldiers reported sick in a single day. And this was no three-day fever. This was influenza in full, deadly force. One doctor wrote, quote, It is only a matter of a few hours then until death comes. We have been averaging 100 deaths per day. Because of America's censorship laws, there had been a time where officials had completely dismissed the virus, calling it just La grip. But even if newspapers didn't want to report it, it was clear now more than ever, even more than in Haskell County, that this was clearly no ordinary case of LaGrippe. Here's a warning. I'm going to describe some of the symptoms caused by the new, deadlier version of influenza. They aren't pretty, so if you're squeamish, I would skip ahead a little bit. Like any flu, victims often experience chills, as well as weariness and a fever, like they had in the first wave. But the second wave was much worse. Patients reported headaches so bad it felt like their skull was being cracked, and body aches that made them scream if they were touched. They bled from every crevice on their body, including their mouths, nose, and ears. Some coughed so hard that they tore abdominal muscles. And victims were so deprived of oxygen that their whole bodies would turn a deep blue that was so dark some doctors couldn't identify the race of most patients in that state. Finally, once their lungs had filled with liquid, they would suffocate and die. All of this took place over the course of a few days, sometimes as quick as a few hours. Doctors and nurses around the country were overburdened with the surge of patients, working 16 hour days if not longer to try and care for all those afflicted, even though care was virtually impossible, and they weren't immune themselves either. Nurses, in particular, often spent days poring over patients before falling ill themselves and dying shortly thereafter. None of this, though, was enough to sway public health officials in the United States. There was still a war going on, and that was first priority. Public health persona refused to call the disease a threat. Some of them, at least, made a publicity campaign against unsanitary behavior like coughing or spitting, but that was about the best they could do. In Philadelphia... Dr. Wilmer Cruson, the Department of Public Health Director, refused to cancel the September 28th Liberty Loan Parade. The parade was supposed to encourage people to buy government bonds and support the war effort. Scientists begged Cruson to cancel it, afraid that it would become what we might call a super-spreader event. But Cruson insisted that the parade was essential and that there was no public health threat. He was wrong. 200,000 people attended the two-mile demonstration, and within two days, the city was crippled by the deadly virus. Hospitals were overrun, death rates rose, and Cruson, who just a few days earlier had endorsed a huge parade, banned all public gatherings to try and slow the spread. But it was all too little, too late. Even as newspapers continued to minimize the danger, more than 250 people were dying each day from the virus in Philadelphia, more than all other causes of death combined. The parade caused 47,000 influenza cases, and more than 12,000 Philadelphians lost their lives to the virus. And this was just one story. One city. There were thousands, just like Philadelphia, across the country and the world, too preoccupied with the war to focus on public health. In the months that followed the second wave, all throughout the United States, in just about every city and every town, there was nothing but death and disease, as influenza swept indiscriminately across the country. Nobody was immune. Not even the president. Just as the Spanish influenza was growing stronger in the second half of 1918, the central powers fighting in World War I were getting weaker. The first to fall were the Turks, in October. After them, it was Austria-Hungary on November 4th. And just one week later, on November 11th, 1918, Germany, which was out of resources and out of luck, was forced to reach an armistice with the Allied powers and stop all military efforts. Armistice day. The war was done, but the fighting wasn't over. Now the leaders of the many nations involved in the war had to come together and agree on the terms for peace. They met in Paris in the new year. Their goal was to prevent any future global conflict like this from ever happening again, but that goal would be much easier said than done. Negotiations went back and forth for months as representatives from dozens of countries fought to have their voices heard. But really, the only leaders who actually mattered were the leaders of France, Britain, Italy, and of course, the United States. And of those four, President Wilson easily had the most influence. When he arrived in Europe in January, he was the most popular political figure in the world. Now if you can remember, Wilson had never wanted to join the war in the first place. He said that the only kind of long-lasting peace would be a peace without victory. Because even though the United States had fought alongside the Allied powers, Wilson thought that harsh punishments imposed by his allies would cause more instability in the future, not less. Wilson was also a strong advocate for what he called the League of Nations, an international body that could help serve as a center for conflict resolution instead of international warfare. Above all else, Wilson thought, the League would prevent future wars. But the negotiations weren't off to a good start. For one thing, three nations out of the big four refused to include any of the defeated Central Powers. They would simply face whatever repercussions the rest of them decided. Nevertheless, Wilson entered peace talks determined to advocate for his peace without victory. There was just one problem. Can you guess it? Influenza rates were spiking in Paris in the winter of 1919. In February, Wilson's daughter contracted influenza, and in March, his wife and members of Wilson's staff had also come down with the disease. Again, your current pandemic knowledge might be able to tell you what happened next. On April 3rd, around six o'clock, Wilson went into a coughing fit and collapsed. For most of his adult life, Wilson had had bouts of terrible health and chronic conditions, so it should come as no surprise that influenza hit him like a truck. But in that moment in Paris, it seemed sudden and unexpected, and left him bedridden and unable to move for days. During those days, Wilson sent a half-hearted proxy to the negotiations, but they largely carried on without him. This might have been for the best, as Wilson was completely incapacitated by the disease. He even spoke to his wife about leaving Paris for good, since it seemed he could do no good there. But sort of out of nowhere, five days after falling ill, Wilson insisted on rejoining the negotiations personally, except he couldn't move, so the French and British Prime Ministers came to him instead. The other leaders had been angry about Wilson's threat to leave negotiations, and the three had gone back and forth about how to handle Germany and peacemaking. And then, all of a sudden, in a huge surprise, Wilson folded. On almost everything. This entire time, the president had been fighting for moderate burdens on Germany. But out of nowhere, from his sickbed, Wilson agreed to everything, all of the harsh measures that other leaders wanted imposed on Germany. The agreement, which became the Treaty of Versailles, forced Germany to take responsibility for the war, give up 10% of its territory, decrease its army and navy size, and pay what would be 560 billion dollars in today's money in war reparations. Yeah. Germans were getting even less than the short end of the stick on that one, so much for peace without victory. When the Germans were presented with this treaty, they complained, loudly, but there was nothing that they or Wilson or anyone else could do. You may be wondering, why after such a long and difficult war would President Wilson cave on so many of his priorities? Well, I was wondering that too. And my answer comes from historian John Barry, who points directly to Wilson's influenza. In numerous autopsies, Spanish flu victims often had damaged blood vessels in their brain, which caused deliriousness and impaired judgment. And even though it's not a universally agreed theory, Barry and others think that the disease was enough to cloud Wilson's mind and sabotage his negotiations. And for the record, I believe it too. The one thing the Treaty of Versailles did include was the creation of the League of Nations. The treaty was incredibly popular among Americans at home and Wilson was confident that he could get it ratified. But the Senate was concerned about some of the obligations outlined in Article 10, like being forced to wage war on other countries in certain circumstances. The Senate, which fell into Republican hands in the last election, worried that these sort of commitments would undermine Congress's sole power to declare war under the U.S. Constitution. When Wilson presented the treaty and its overwhelming support to the Senate, he'd asked, Dare we reject it and break the heart of the world? The Senate decided that it did dare, and the treaty came up seven votes short. In the end, the United States signed a separate treaty with Germany that gave them quote, all of the rights, privileges, indemnities, reparations, or advantages of the Treaty of Versailles, but without the League of Nations. And the US would never join the League of Nations. The war was finally over, for real this time, but it hadn't ended how Wilson had hoped. It wasn't at all a peace without victory. There's an irony, and a tragedy to the whole thing, isn't there? That Wilson, who knew how to achieve peace, watched it go awry because of the pandemic that he ignored. Do you guys know those Where Are They Now? segments at the end of movies? Well, here's what that would sound like for the effects of this episode. In the end, Germany came to resent the harsh punishments in the Treaty of Versailles and the political and economic instability that it caused. The poor conditions in Germany would eventually allow for a dictator and a fascist to rise to power as the leader of the Nazi party two decades later and cause World War II. Woodrow Wilson, still obsessed with the League of Nations, set out on a national tour to try and drum up support for the US to join against the advice of his doctors. In September 1919 Wilson suffered a devastating stroke that left him completely incapacitated for the rest of his presidency. It's widely agreed by historians that his wife secretly assumed the day-to-day responsibilities of a president for the rest of his term, which ended in 1921. He died in 1924. And the pandemic? Well, like I told you before, viruses need a host to survive. And by 1920, the Spanish influenza had run out of hosts. There was no Pfizer or Moderna to bail anybody out in those days, so the only thing to do was to let the virus take its course. It had burned its way from Haskell County, Kansas, all across the world, infecting 500 million people worldwide and killing roughly 50 million of them. All of this, more or less, was caused by a president who ignored the threat of an impending virus. Here we are, more than 100 years later, and what really has changed?
1: The risk to the American people remains very low. I mean, view this the same as the flu. It's going to disappear. One day, it's like a miracle. It will disappear.
0: At the time of recording this episode, the U.S. has nearly 31 million cases of COVID-19 and more than 560,000 deaths. By the time you listen to this, that number will be even larger. When talking about handling the growing threat of the virus last year, President Trump called himself a wartime president. I mean, it's, a number of people have said it,
1: but, and I feel it actually, I'm a wartime president. This is a war, this is a war, different kind of a war that we've ever had.
0: But Wilson was a wartime president too, and he still let the pandemic rage. We should have known that a wartime president doesn't stop a pandemic. If anything, it makes them worse. So what's our excuse? and what domino effects will come from this that we can't even imagine yet. The whole point of this podcast is to prove, first, that history repeats itself, and second, that if you can notice history repeating itself, you can recognize and overcome it. But here I am, in our very first episode, conceding that that isn't always the case. Sometimes, you can have everything you need to know in front of you. All the science, all the evidence, all of the history— And you can still be blindsided by politics, partisanship, and appearances. Wilson was. And so was Trump.
1: Now the Democrats are politicizing the coronavirus. And this is their new hoax.
0: Because of that leadership, Americans died. Thousands of them. And so here we are. One year later, with the pandemic still raging, wondering what we're supposed to do. And here's what I'll say. There's no lying that we missed the chance to prevent or lessen this pandemic by a long shot. We didn't see or didn't care that history was repeating itself. But for right now, here's what you can do. You can keep wearing your mask. You can keep social distancing. You can get your vaccine when it becomes available to you. And like me, you can hope that when the next pandemic comes calling, the people a 100 years from now will notice history repeating itself before we could. Hey, maybe third time's the charm. I'm Dylan Mims. Thank you for listening to Press That to Times. If you like what you heard, and we hope that you do, please make sure to check us out anywhere you get your podcasts. We'll be back with another episode next Wednesday. This episode of Presented Times draws primarily from the work of John M. Barry and his 2004 book, The Great Influenza. Supplemental information was drawn from the Paris Peace Conference and the Treaty of Versailles from the U.S. State Department historian. As always, we thank and credit their incredible research, without which this show would not be possible. Thanks again for listening. And until the next, precedented time.